Welcome to another one of these. I'm your host. I am your host, Pete. Um, I'm so glad that I have you all with me today on this wonderful, wonderful day. Um, Let's just start right off with this. So this is not going to be episode 500. This is going to be episode 490-something B. Um, I, I received a disturbed message about where is uh, where is episode 500. So this will be 498B. Um, I guess it wasn't taken seriously that, you know, I would uh, actually make everyone do the 12 Trials of Snowmancules before episode 500 was released. Uh, I'm absolutely going to make everyone do that. And you can't stop me. Because it's my show. Uh, We did, however, and so those tasks have not been completed. But we did, however, have some of them completed. So let's let's just go over these. Now, I wrote these down here, and now I'm not sure if this is actually the correct list. So I'm going to have to go go back and listen, but what, whatever. If we did a combination of things that added up to being 12 tasks, that'd be great. Okay, one is to drink a helpful snowman flight. So that's a smallest, smallish glass, smallest glass each of Malort, Albertson's whiskey, night train, and a badly blended vegetable smoothie that looks like sewage. This, to my knowledge, has not yet been completed. Number two, read a Charles Hinton book and do a book report on it. This has been completed, and we will get to that very next. Add one of, your, add one of my books to your Goodreads to read list. This has been completed. Read and review the Demolition Man novelization. Uh, has not been completed, to my knowledge. Buy at least 10 coffee mugs from thrift stores, bring them into work slowly, and overfill the cabinet where the mugs are kept. Never admit that any of them are yours. Not completed. Wear a Big Johnson t-shirt at least once or more if you fall in love. Not completed. List a Cheeto shaped like an object for sale on eBay. Not completed. Create and submit an idea for a game to be played on the show. Not completed. Make a personalized urinal screen to advertise Helpful Snowman and place it in a urinal. Not completed. Accept a small pack of a few too many Peter Dirk Book Club stickers, which I have, uh, not completed. Make a brand new theme song for the show, not completed. And uh, acceptance of all 25 custom belt buckles that I ordered, not completed, uh, but it has begun. Uh, Some of them have been claimed, but not all. So uh, get on it. I don't know if people think, like, I'll just send one to you because it's like, oh, well, it's you. No, that's not how this works. You have to claim one. And you can only claim it for yourself, not for anyone else. So, you know, I'm not sending two to anybody. Um, My mom has claimed one. 
I don't know if she listens to the show or somehow was made aware of this some other way. Uh, I'm going to just pretend she doesn't listen to this show, even though I, I don't probably does. I don't think I spend a lot of time smack talking my mom. Oh God. On here. It's just more like the embarrassment of like, this is what your son is doing with his life. <laughs> uh, she's listening to this crying herself to sleep. Cause it's like, Oh my God, this is ridiculous. Okay. Let's do uh, the Charles Hinton book report. (laughs) Um, So this is a a message I got from a friend of the show, Wilma. Hi, Wilma. Uh, Peter, I can't quite believe that Charles Hinton charges as much as he does for his stories. (laughs) That's just how it starts, which is great. My Snowman Killies Charles Hinton book report is attached. I'm too tired now to properly proofread it, but I had fun. (laughs) Um, Sounds about right. Yes, he does charge more than you would think. Um, I think it seems like a lot before you read it and you see how many pages it is and you're like, geez, it's kind of a lot for a story of that length. Then you read it and you're like, actually, I would have paid more for less. Okay, so this is a titled Factor Fiction, Perceptions of the Legal Profession in Get Him Off, Attorney at Law, parentheses, Pimp Law. That is the uh, title of the book, by the way. Get Him Off, Attorney at Law, parentheses, Pimp Law. (laughs) All right, here we go. Charles Hinton's tight story (laughs) depicts a jumbled series of events in the life of a successful defense attorney aptly named Get Him Off. Charles Hinton's tight story. I think that uh, that sort of backhanded compliment is probably the best thing anyone's ever said about any of his books. Still, Hinton's minimalist scenes managed to convey fairly consistent impressions about attorneys and the criminal justice system. Hinton clearly believes that prosecutors and defense attorneys are primarily socioeconomic allies, that defendants are guilty, and that the best attorneys have a mystical ability to manipulate juries. <laughs> I, yes. Um, we're go- Wilma, you're going down a dangerous path of trying to uh, determine what Charles Hinton is thinking. I say it's a dangerous path because that path leads only to madness. Because the further you get down that path, the more you're like, none of this makes sense. The story's central conflict is between Mr. Off, a defense attorney, and Bob, the district attorney. After Mr. Off wins an unlikely victory for a defendant, Bob wagers that Mr. Off will not win his next case. In the opening scene, Mr. Off and Bob walk together to court while bantering about one of Mr. Off's cases. Walking to work on a Monday morning while engaged in light conversation strongly suggests that there is no personal animosity between these professional adversaries. Later in the story, Bob invites Mr. Off and his spouse to Sunday dinner at Bob's home. Hinton clearly means to convey intimacy with this detail, given that Sunday evenings are a time reserved for family and close friends. Over dinner, Bob and Mr. Off make a wager based on the outcome of a case. This high-stakes wager is essentially a friendly bet between two bourgeois men who have little regard for the defendants involved, reminiscent of the $1 bet between Randolph and Mortimer in Trading Places. 
Hinton takes care to inform the reader that both Bob and Mr. Off are millionaires. Because <laughs> why not? The details of the relationship between Mr. Off and Bob illustrate Hinton's belief that even prosecutors and defense attorneys are, first and foremost, class allies. All right. I guess that stands to reason. In Hinton's world, defendants are guilty. On the first page, we learn that Mr. Off's clients tend to commit their crimes in full view of the public, such that there is no doubt of their guilt. The story provides further details about two of Mr. Off's clients who fit this description. And yet Mr. Off's main skill as a lawyer is persuading juries to relieve these defendants of criminal responsibility. On the second page, Bob basically tells Mr. Off and the reader that insanity pleas exist so that wealthy, guilty clients can get away with murder. Mr. Off even tells his second client that he doesn't care whether the man might be innocent. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, yes, so many things. It's got to be funny because I know Wilma has some background in a, in a sort of legal realms. Um, and like, okay, for a person like me to read a Charles Hinton book about a lawyer, you know, is like, uh, it's at least mildly hilarious, right? Because I'm like, this seems pretty unlikely or that seems pretty implausible. But it's like if Charles Hinton wrote a book about a librarian, you know, and then I'd be like, okay, you know, and it was like about a millionaire librarian. <laughs> like, um, let's see. Hinton believes attorneys are successful because of an almost mystical ability to present lies as truth. As Mr. Off makes his first closing argument, he asks the jury to consider that the defendant was trying to shoot a... Oh, that's right. I was trying to remember how this went. Uh, that Mr. Off... <laughs> or that the client, I'm sorry. The defendant was trying to shoot a bat in order to save the lives of others and that the defendant missed his shot, tragically striking a nun ten times. <laughs> The reader can't help but recognize this as an absurd, transparent lie and possibly conclude that attorneys are liars. At the end of the story... <laughs> oh, I forgot how this story went, but yeah. It was like a guy basically shot a nun ten times in broad daylight, and then, yeah, Mr. Off is like... He was trying to shoot a bat that was attacking the nun. He was trying to save the nun. <laughs> Uh, I love this. Readers can't help but recognize this as an absurd, transparent lie <laughs> and possibly conclude that attorneys are liars. At the end of the story, we learn that both Mr. Off and an unnamed attorney have used hypnosis on their jury. <laughs> Here, hypnosis is a hyperbolic distortion of the persuasion and manipulation that attorneys regularly engage in. To the uninitiated, those techniques might appear to be mystical. As usual, Hinton's barely coherent storyline reveals a constellation of Hinton's beliefs about the world. Here, Hinton's story is basically an extended lawyer joke, conveying the same widely held negative beliefs about lawyers held by the public at large. That all lawyers are class allies, that defendants are guilty, and that the best liars become the best attorneys. Well done. That was a, an excellent book report. <laughs>
That was like a perfect five paragraph essay format. Oh God. Yes. I think this is what, what I find so fascinating about Charles Hinton and it's like exactly what this hits on. Right. Cause it's like, uh, <laughs> is it possible to read a Charles Hinton book and then derive any meaning from it? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think yes. And then sometimes I'm like, absolutely not. And I oscillate between those two positions of maybe and absolutely not. <laughs> it's like, it's almost like too, if you read these sort of things. Okay. As an example, one of the Agent Coldbeer books, Agent, I think it's an Agent Coldbeer, his, his like a uh, handler for whatever, whatever organization he's a part of the CIA or some shit. Um, his handler works out of an office in Philadelphia and she's like a poor black woman who lives in the ghetto who also for some reason hasn't like works out of her house or something like that. And like, uh, the way that Charles Hinton presents this woman is like, uh, it's very stereotypical. Um, and he's, he seems to have a weird obsession with, as he calls it, the ghetto, you know, and like the people who reside there, but it's also like, he doesn't make them out to be the bad guys. It's just, he has, he has difficult to define ideas about what that is. And it, it makes me pretty sure that he has never lived in the ghetto and maybe doesn't know a black person, but I'm not sure. This is the thing is like, for all I know, he could be that person. I don't know. And it's like the more you, it's almost like the more you read, the less you can understand or figure out. You know what I mean? You read Jurassic War and it's like, at times it's like, oh, this is like, you know, a typical propaganda E, the military is awesome. And then two pages later, you're like, this is like total military incompetence. It's just so, his books are so inconsistent. The tone is inconsistent. The story is incoherent, I think, as, as it was put in here. <laughs> like an absurd, transparent lie. <laughs> absurd is a good way to describe, I think. <laughs> okay, here's what I can't decide about get him off attorney at law. And if anyone else wants to read this, I would love to hear your thoughts. I can't decide if, um, if like this is supposed to be, if I, as a reader, am supposed to read, get him off attorney at law and walk away feeling like my God, uh, get him off. Mr. Off is like, the most manipulative, horrible person of all time? Or am I supposed to walk... Is this Charles Hinton's version of Clarence Darrow? You know what I mean? Is this his, like, uh, fucking To Kill a Mockingbird guy? What the hell is that guy's name? Uncle Cletus, whatever. <laughs> Why can't I think of his name? Doesn't matter. Point being, like, is this what... Is this what Charles Hinton thinks an awesome attorney is like? Um, I'm not sure. I, that's, that's the thing. Everything about his books is so incoherent. I, <laughs> and that's what I love about them. But, uh, Wilma, excellent, 
excellent work. And I'm going to cross the Charles Hinton book report off the list. Uh, I don't know what the text shortcut is. Oh, Command-Shift-X. Okay. We'll do the uh, Goodreads review while we're here. And uh, that's two off the list, so we're down to ten out of twelve. Looks like we'll be there soon. Well, I have some updates for everybody. <laughs> I had a, a terrible idea the other day, which I, I'm glad I talked out. So, in, in my home, there's a sort of famous story, which is the Pete's gas hole story, um, which was like, I was saying at one point, you know, like, a fantasy life of mine would be to open up a gas station in, like, Cisco, on the Cisco exit as you go west on I-70. There's nothing out there. There used to be a gas station out there. And uh, I just opened that up and, you know, it'd be like a tourist trap. And I was like, I don't know, I'd call it like Pete's Gas Shack or Pete's Gas Hole. And I told this to Poon Master Flex very early in our dating. And she burst out laughing. And I like didn't understand what was going on. Because I was so dense that I didn't realize what I had said was basically Pete's asshole or Pete's gas hole, which is basically a, an asshole, right? Um, and, you know, she was like laughing too hard to explain to me what I had just said. And I was like getting annoyed because I was like, what? Can you like calm down enough to at least tell me what the hell is so funny? You know, gas hole and whatever. So what I'm saying is I have a history of this, okay? And uh, I did it again, but luckily I didn't do it. Well, I did it in front of Poon Master Flex again. Um, so I guess fortunately I've done it in front of somebody who cares for me instead of just like bringing this out into the public and being like, oh shit. I had this really, what I thought was a very funny idea. So we've all heard of gym bros, right? And then I was like, what if there was a, a like a bird, you know, and it was like a Jim Crow, G-Y-M Crow. Now you're probably already thinking uh, what I should have thought immediately. I think part of the problem is I was thinking this in my mind, but I wasn't saying it out loud. Um, also, I was like, G-Y-M-C-R-O, you know, and it'd be like a Jim Bro, but it was a crow. And it was like, yeah, because like crows are real big up top and then they have skinny little legs. And that was pretty much the joke, right? <laughs> and then I was telling Poon Master Flex about it. And then she was kind of like, don't you think other people will associate that with like Jim Crow? And I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, and that's when I realized that I was like, oh yeah, these like 1950s laws or whatever, that's probably not going to work. Unfortunately, a joke that would otherwise be hilarious has been ruined by the racism. And now I, now I can't do it because I, you know, obviously, I mean, on the plus I didn't end up, you know, deploying it in a big way and then I would have had to be like, I didn't realize that. And then that would sound incredibly fake and stupid, but it would <laughs> actually would have been true. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think that at some point when I was like going through this, 
I would have been like, oh, fuck. Wait a minute. Jim Crow is, like, when you say it, it sounds identical. What is that, a homophone? It sounds identical to the the other horrible thing, even though it's, like, totally unrelated to that and, you know, doesn't come from that. And I was like, I wonder if there's, like, an all-white Jim that they call Jim Crow. But anyway... So, uh, yeah, my hilarious Jim Crow joke isn't going to happen. So, you know, fuck you, racists. You ruined something else. That would have been super fun. If only there was a way to, uh, you know, go back in time and change the name of that to something else. I mean, I guess I could also, like, try and go back in time and make it not happen, but that seems very unrealistic. Uh, which brings us to the topic of National Novel Writing Month, which I'm participating in, sort of. Basically, every November, uh, people try National Novel Writing Month, where you try to write a 50,000-word novel in one month. Which I was like, I could do that shit. Um, I think I succeeded one time in getting that word count. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm way behind. As, as happens every month. And it's kind of, so it's like about 1,700 words a day, which is a lot. It's about like three pages. You know, if you open up a Google Doc and just start typing, it's like three pages. Which is like not a crazy amount for me. Um, it's not a crazy amount for me. I'm a big writer. But, you know, it's a, it's not like a, an a, a outrageous amount of typing per day. But it, as you get behind, it becomes a pretty outrageous amount to make up. Because when you get one day behind and then the next day you have to do 3,400 words and you have to do six pages, you're like, oh, shit. And then, you know, within just uh, – <laughs> if you get three days behind, then you've got an awful lot to do. But uh, the story, you know, it's – I decided to do one of my uh, signature goofball books. And it's about a guy who can time travel. He gets a time travel belt uh, sent to him by accident. It's not supposed, he's not supposed to get it. He was applying for a boating license and they sent him a time travel belt instead. And so then he uh, has various adventures through time. He, you know, tries to kill baby Hitler, but of course that doesn't go well. Then he decides that maybe he should uh, watch time travel movies so he can figure out whether or not he'll fuck up the world. So then he watches the butterfly effect and then the two straight-to-video sequels and then decides that what he should do with his time travel is uh, travel back in time and fix the butterfly effect sequels, which also doesn't really work. Then he figures out he can go to the future if he breaks the safety tab off of his, uh, his belt. And so that's about where we are now. So you can probably tell by how slim that description is about how far along I am. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's NaNoWriMo this year. I had this weird thing happen, and it was, um, okay, I'm watching Stranger Things Season 4, if that's the newest season. I think that's the newest. And I think it's supposed to be the second to last and so on. And uh, I'm not enjoying it that much because there's, like, over-the-top, like, high school bully stuff. 
that like I don't I don't know what it is about TV and movies, but they are like obsessed with like super over the top uh high school people being jerks to each other. I mean, like in Stranger Things, there's a sequence where this girl's being bullied at the roller rink. And it's like all these kids, all these kids somehow, it's like a, a thing from a musical where they all, you know, spontaneously know what to do when a song comes on. So what happens is they ask the DJ to play Wipeout. And then they bring this girl out to the center of the skating rink floor. And then they all skate in a circle around her and just basically call her names. And then one of the other kids goes up to the DJ and is like, hey, stop playing that song. And he's kind of like, ah, can't, no can do, man. Everybody's having too much of a good time or something. And you're just like, why would this roller rink DJ be okay with this? You know what I mean? Like, I would think the roller rink DJ would be like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to play a song so that like a bunch of people can skate in a threatening circle around some, you know what I mean? Just shit like that. Uh, anyway, but uh, one of the things that like, and the other thing with Stranger Things is like, the part that I find a little unrealistic or hard to deal with is the like uh, period of disbelief. Okay, so in the first season, you know, if you haven't seen it, basically a bunch of crazy shit happens. They like, you know, let's just say monster shit, supernatural shit happens. Let's call it that. Um, and like all the characters involved are involved in the supernatural shit. They see it happening. It's like completely undeniable. They would never deny that, uh, insane supernatural things that would fundamentally change how you interact with the world are, that's what they witnessed. Right. So then you go into season two. And so season two has an arc. Um, where, you know, it starts off and everything's kind of normal and things get less normal and so on and so forth. And you're like, eh, okay, but, you know, it really should be a pretty quick leap, I think, from uh, things are not normal or things are normal to things are not normal and this might be really bad. Uh, remember the thing that happened last year? You haven't forgotten that, right? Where, like, people died and it was, uh, you know supernatural and terrifying and all this shit happen. Um, whatever. By the time I got to season three, I was like, okay, this, this period of disbelief where they're like, something strange is happening. Stranger things have happened. Um, but they're also like a little bit of disbelief. I was like, guys, I don't know. Cause here's the thing. Uh, this week, we discovered a screw had somehow come out of our oven. So inside the oven door, there's a screw that holds the handle on, right? So that you pull the oven open and Hoonmaster Flex went to open the oven. The handle just kind of like came loose. And she was like, there's a screw missing here. And so I was looking for it and I was like, how is this even possible? Like, I don't know how a screw would come out of this. I don't know what would work a screw loose I don't know where it is. I don't know how long it's been missing. You know, I have many questions about this. Um, but all suffice to say that I'm like, well, that's weird. And the thing with Stranger Things, if I had experienced what those kids all experienced in season one of Stranger Things, 
any time for the rest of my life that anything mildly bizarre happened, I would immediately attribute it to uh, supernatural craziness happening, right? That would be my go-to first thought is like, uh-oh, something fucked up and supernatural is happening. And so, like, the, so if this screw was missing from my oven, as it is now, I'm like, that's unusual. But I'm like, I guess there are some plausible explanations, such as, you know, um, tea kettle is on the oven all the time and rattled it loose, you know, or like a boiling pot has been on here for hours and hours. And maybe that rattled it loose at some point, you know, something. But if I was, if I'd gone through the Stranger Things life, I would immediately be like, something supernatural has just happened. It's a little bit like the same problem you come across with the X-Files, right? When you watch it back and you're like, well, they kind of want to keep Agent Scully as the skeptic. But at some point, it's like, look, you saw the fluke man. You saw him. Like, once you've seen the fluke man, I think you have to, like, recalibrate what you're willing and unwilling to believe, right? You have to, like, take a step back from your life and say, you know, maybe some of my perceptions of what's real and unreal, uh, maybe this warrants some adjustment. <laughs> so that's that's the thing, the thought I've been having about Stranger Things lately is I'm just sort of like, eh, you guys just need to get into the, like, you know what? I mean, they should start saying the thing in the show. Stranger things have happened. And when they're like, you know, something crazy happens and they're like, you know, we saw some strange shit. Uh, and they did do a little better this season. I'll give them that. But, you know, it was part of what kept me from watching it right away was I was just like, ugh, I don't want to go through this period of doubt again. Um, I hope you all enjoyed Phantom of the Hip Hopera, by the way. I did a bonus episode on the Patreon where I kind of talked about, you know, where that all came from and shit. So I'm not going to get into it here, but uh, that was a pretty different pot of ween for, for us. I was going to say for us, and then I'm always like, why do I say that? I say us. Like there's anybody else who's remotely involved in this. Whatever. It was, a, it was an unusual different thing, and I wasn't sure it was going to work, and I'm not sure it did. But here we are. Rocking you like a hurricane. <laughs> -na -na. Um, I had some friends who went to see the Scorpions. And I was like, uh, after the show, I was like, well, what did you think? Like, if you had to compare this to a weather event, <laughs> what if you had to compare how the Scorpions rocked you to a weather event, do you have one in mind? If you had, you know, like a... I don't know, a light mist, something like that. Just a, a dusting of snow, maybe the first fall leaves. I don't know, a, a high pressure system, low humidity day, drought. I just played myself out, didn't I? I was like, you're done. Get off the stage. Get off the podcast stage. 